time with God every day. Every day. Every day. I will spend time with God. I will pray. I will pray. 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 I will pray. I will be holy. I will be holy. 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 I will be. I will be holy. I will fulfill God's purpose for me and my generation. My generation. My generation. I will fulfill God's purpose. God's purpose for my generation. For me and my generation. My generation. I will live the vow. So in Matthew chapter 22, the Pharisee, we're all really familiar with this verse. Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds and he's like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now we focus a lot on that first commandment, wouldn't you say? I mean, we, I know I do personally. I focus a lot on that first commandment and that is the first commandment. And that should be like a first priority and it should be kind of in that order. The first commandment being love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But I've heard it, heard it said, and I, all, and I probably said it myself too, that the second commandment is fulfilled in the, pursuit, in the pursuit and the fulfillment of the first commandment. Have you ever heard that? I, I said that before myself, that the second, if you, if you love, if you get to the spot where you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you just focus on that and you pursue that and you pursue Him, then just naturally the second commandment is going to be fulfilled. Well, I think that's wrong. And I don't think that's right. I think, uh, I think that Jesus states those commandments, the first one and the second one, for a reason. And it's not necessarily that if we fulfill the first, we fulfill the second. It's not necessarily that. We do need to pursue the first. That needs to be the first priority. It needs to go in that order. But we also need to have teaching and focus on the second commandment. The Pharisees, the Pharisees came to Jesus and they asked, which is the greatest commandment in the law? commandment. They asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And they said singular commandment. And Jesus does like he so often does and responds like out of the box, you know. He doesn't just give them one commandment. He gives them two commandments. He does that for a reason. They ask him a question about the law and he responds in love. They say, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. If, if by focusing on the first commandment, we fulfill the second commandment, what would be the purpose of Jesus saying the second commandment? Of course, of course, if, if we're going to fulfill the second by, by obeying the first, he wouldn't have said the second. He said the second because we need to focus on the first first, and then we need to focus on the second second. And we talk about the first commandment a whole lot, but I'm going to talk tonight about the second commandment. Love your neighbor or love others or love your generation as yourself. That's what I'm going to be talking about so we see this second commandment, Jesus, they didn't even ask him for two commandments, but he gives us two commandments, and there's reasons to that. That second commandment carries great weight. It's a really weighty commandment that he gives us to love your neighbor, to love others as yourself. The weightiness of it is found that in three of the four gospels, that story is told about the Pharisee coming up to Jesus and Jesus responding with the two commandments, three of the four gospels. And then three times in three different books in the New Testament, we see the same idea talking about the second commandment. And this is the idea. It's the weightiness of this idea. Galatians chapter 5 verse 14. <clears throat> For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What word is he talking about? He's talking about love. In one word, love. In the statement, love your neighbor as yourself. James 2.8. He says it matter-of-factly. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture. He's like... If you're fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, which is you shall love the Lord, your, or, or is you should love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing well. Matter of factly, in order to obey all the law, all the law, 
is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then Romans 13, 9, all three of these spots, for this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Three times through the New Testament, there's great emphasis of the weight of the second commandment. And it says that all the law is fulfilled if we obey the second commandment. If we can learn to love our neighbor as ourself, then we have completed all of the law. You've been in obedience to all of the law. To the book, the Bible, we've been in obedience to the whole Bible if we will learn to love our neighbor as ourself. Is that a weighty commandment? So Jesus just simplifies it. He just brings it down to our level. And he's like, I'm not going to give you one commandment. I'm going to give you two. And, and in these two commandments, you pursue me first, put me first. I am your center. And then the second is love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do these things, you are obeying and pleasing me. You're pleasing in my sight. You're obeying the scriptures. You're obeying the law. If you do these two things, simplified, real easy. Not really so easy, but said real easy. So not only is there this truth of this weightiness of the second, of the second commandment, but God puts a lot of emphasis on love all throughout the scriptures, which you guys know. So I'm going to define love here. We say in our culture, we use love a lot for a lot of things. We say, I love my wife. I love my parents. I love my siblings. Then in the, in the same breath, we use the same word. And we're like, I love hamburgers. I love buffalo wild wings, which doesn't do all you can eat at lunch anymore. Boo. Sorry if you're just now finding that out. In the same breath. <laughs> In the same breath, we say we love our wives and we love people and we love hamburgers. So we've lost this, we've lost this definition of love. I looked up in the dictionary, just the normal dictionary, what the word love means. I looked up love and it said this, this is the very first definition for the word love, a profoundly tender, passionate affection. A profoundly tender, passionate affection is what the dictionary says. And I'm like, no wonder why we've we've lost the definition of love. We've used the word love in so many wrong aspects. I mean, I can have a profound, a profoundly tender, passionate affection towards my wife. I can have a profoundly tender, passionate affection toward hot wings too. That definition, that dictionary definition, that's not it. That's not the definition of love. It is in the dictionary, but if we want to find out the true definition of, of a word, where do we look? We want to know God's definition. So we look <laughs> So we look in the scriptures, all right? And I know we have definitions of love in 1 Corinthians 13. We have a whole chapter devoted to defining love. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, all those things. I know we have that. We have all throughout the scriptures comments and instructions and statements about love. And I'm going to state a few of them here for you. This is all through the scriptures. I know we have the definition in 1 Corinthians 13. But we're instructed and, and these statements say, love your enemies. Another one is, is we're instructed to love one another. Another statement, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Another instruction, love without hypocrisy, which means to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Another, knowledge makes us arrogant, but love edifies. The result of true love for God is obedience to his commands. Faith working through love is what ma really matters. We're to speak the truth in love. Husband and wives ought to love each other. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Love casts out all fear. If we love the world, we don't love the Lord. These are just a few statements of love that are stated all throughout the scriptures. 
And so we see all these instructions, all these statements, all these thorough definitions of love, but Jesus breaks it down for us yet again. Jesus' words, one statement, shows us and reveals to us the depth of love. And that's, that's found right here in John chapter 15, verse 13. And he says, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. I think that those are Jesus' words. So Jesus is defining love for us. We have love defined throughout all the scriptures, but he breaks it down, simplifies it, brings it down to our level, and he says, listen, the depth of love, the greatest depth of love that you could ever reach is a man laying down his life for one's friends. So we see this definition right there. So therefore, the expression of love is fully seen in losing one's life for others. Now that does mean actually physically, Jesus exemplified that for us, right? He was the example when he lived on the earth. He actually died. He lost his life, his physical life, thus representing the, the fullness and the depth of love. Jesus did, did show us that way. Martyrs, when they're killed for the gospel, they're out in other countries, they're out preaching the gospel, and they're martyred. They're killed, they're stabbed, they're shot, whatever it is. They've actually given their life, their physical life, for the gospel. That's the full extent of love. That's the depth of love. But I think when Jesus makes this statement, he says, love has no one greater than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. It has a broader application than just physically dying. So he's not saying we haven't reached the fullness and the depth of love unless we actually physically die for the gospel. So let me explain this. Mark 8, 35 says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. So obviously he's not saying, he's talking about if we lose our life, or if, if we want to save our life, we'll lose it. We'll lose eternity. That's what he's saying. But obviously he's not saying if we want to save our, if we want to save our physical life, if we don't actually physically die for the gospel, then we won't find eternity, that we won't save our eternal life. Obviously he's not saying that. So in this context, he's saying, he's saying if we want to save our life, if we want to hold on, to our, to our own decisions, to our own opinions. If we want to hold on to our will, our own will, then in the end we're going to lose eternity. But if you're willing to lose your will, I'm just going to say it right from here. If you're willing to lose, if you make a willful decision to lay down your rights, your opinions, your choices, your given freedoms for the sake of God and for the sake of a generation, then that's the one that loves, that's the one that saves, that's the one that has eternal life. So the ap application of love it's definitely laying down your life, but the application is much wider than just physically, physically dying. The application is laying down your life, laying down your will, laying down your own decisions. You don't get to make your own choices anymore. It's a laying down of life that's loving to the fullest extent. I want to I highlight two other scriptures here that he, that he gives us more definition on love. First John this is crazy. 1 John 3.16. You know John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's about love and that's about salvation. 1 John 3.16, same exact writer. This is what he says. This is how we know what love is. Yeah, I mean, it couldn't be more simple than that. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone, now then he goes on to explain, what does it mean to lay down your life for your brothers? What does that mean? He goes on to explain it. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. 
So here, John, John says love is an action. Love is an action. Love is the, it is the action of willfully, purposefully choosing to lay down your life for Jesus and for a generation. We want to be ministers of a generation. You want to be youth pastors. You want to be business people. You want to spread the gospel. You want to spread the fame of God. You got to learn to love a generation. Lay down our lives. It's an action of laying down our lives. Spreading the gospel and spreading the name and fame of Jesus. John chapter 13, verse 34. He says, Jesus' words, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another even, even as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's by our love, it's by the laying down of our lives, that, every, that people see that we're Jesus' disciples. Does that make sense? Love is in action. Love is laying down your life. It's laying down your will. It's laying down your choice. It's laying down your uh, desires and your pleasures for a generation and for Jesus. This goes against everything that we've been taught, every, every way that we've been brought up. This goes against our culture. This goes against our society. In Bible times, they worshipped a lot of different things. They worshipped statues. They worshipped golden calves. They worshipped the sun god, the moon god, the fire god. They would have festivals. They would have parties where they get drunk and have orgies to their gods. They would sacrifice people. They would kill babies, all in the name of their gods. So what they did in the Bible times in the 21st century in America, we don't have a whole lot of people that are like walking down the street bowing down to golden calves, do we? We don't have a lot of people that worship sun gods in the 21st century in America, but we do have a predominant god that we worship, and it's the God of self. We've been raised up in a culture and a society that is exactly the opposite of love, which is the, the God of self. We say, you know, get what you can get for you. Get it now. Get it right away. It's for you. It's all about me, you know. It's all about I. It's all about me. It's all about my pleasures. How much money can I make? How big of a house can I have? How much fun and, and where can I travel in my lifetime? What kind of pleasures can I experience? What about this one? What can DLA do for me? What does the furnace have to offer me? It's all over. It's when we pray. It's when we talk. It's when we walk. It's when we go out with friends. The culture and society, the upbringing, everything around us. We're in a river of me, 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 I, 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 self, 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 the God of self. We worship ourselves. That's the current. That's what's happening among us. We're consumed and possessed with pleasing ourselves. We've been lifted up in an egotistical, self-absorbed, narcissist society. Say that ten times in a row. And the truth is, is that the nature of love is exactly opposite of that. The nature of love, selfishness and love are antonyms. Selflessness and love are synonyms. The nature of love is the exact opposite of the nature of our society, of our upbringing, of the world. And don't you think the devil did that on purpose? And by the way, the nature of love is the nature of God. God is love. The nature of God is the nature of love. The nature of love is the nature of God. Love is selfless. Our society is selfish. Everything around us is telling us to do the opposite of the nature of God. But the Spirit of God is saying, I want to move in you love. I want to move in you my very nature. 
I want you to love me as I have loved you. I want you to love them as, as I have loved you and love them. I want to move in you to live selfless. I want to move in you to give up your life for a generation. We have this idea that we're going to be like these youth pastors and we're going to be like these, these, these missionaries and, and we're going to preach to millions and we're going to see hundreds of thousands of people saved, but we still aren't losing ourselves. There is none of that without love. We have to learn the basic foundations. I mean, we can hardly get through ministry tribes. Ministry tribes, come on. What kind of attitude do you have during ministry tribes? Are you loving? Are you serving? Or is it about you? Is this program, DLA and Furnace, about you? Or is it about God and a generation? Come on, we're talking about a generation. Do you want to see a generation rise up in desperate pursuit of God? Kill your flesh. Die to yourself. Die to your own desires and passions and wills. Kill it. That's what love is. Love doesn't come without the killing of the flesh. It takes purposeful effort. Purposeful effort to choose to love God and love others. The reason Jesus said the second commandment It's not fulfilled in fulfilling the first. The reason he said it is so that we would teach it, we would learn it, we would pray about it, we would meditate on it, and that we would live it. He wants us to live the first commandment, but he also wants us to live the second commandment. That's why he said it. I've I've given this example before, but the purposeful effort example that is just the whole world is like a raging river, and we're in a canoe, and we have paddles. I use this example for consecration and to be set apart. If we want to be set apart, you have to make a purposeful effort to be set apart. Because the world and the flow of the world and selfishness is flowing like a raging river. We're in a canoe. We have paddles. We're paddling upstream trying to live selfless lives and love our generation. And as soon as you stop making a purposeful effort to kill your flesh, to lay down your life for a generation, and you stop paddling, you're going to start going with the flow of the world. You're just going to start worshiping yourself again. That's my first part, all about love. Now I want to talk about the cost of love. That this actually, this costs us something, obviously. Loving God and loving a generation, it costs, it will cost you. There's no one in history that loved God and loved a generation and it didn't cost them anything. No one. It will cost us something. Jesus presents this idea about the cost in Luke 14, and he, and he presents this idea as, as a healthy thing for us to consider the cost of being a disciple and to disciple and minister to others, to spread the name, to spread the gospel, to spread the name of the Lord. He presents this idea, listen, it's going to cost you something. Now there are blessings and good things that, that come our way for choosing Christ, for living by kingdom principles. There are blessings, there are good things, but Jesus isn't so concerned with those things. He's more concerned with our growth than he is our comfort. He's more concerned with our growth than he is our comfort. And that scene, and Jesus went out of, out of his way to explain to us the cost of discipleship. Don't read ahead, look at me. Jesus, let me tell you something, Jesus never used the blessings or the good things or the blessings that come by living by kingdom principles to manipulate or convince someone to serve him. He never used the blessings. There are blessings. There are good things that come our way for serving God, but he never used the blessings 
or the good things for us living by the kingdom principles, for us giving him, him our life. He never used those to convince people or manipulate people into loving him. Why? Because he wants people to love him because he's worthy. Truth is, is if we didn't receive anything, any good thing for choosing him, he's still worthy. And that scene, I know I said this before in The Rich Young Ruler. I love the story. Just can't keep from telling it over and over again. The rich young ruler comes running up to Jesus, falling on his knees. Sincerely and genuinely, the scriptures declare, he's genuinely desiring what he must do to inherit the kingdom of God. Genuinely. What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Teacher, teacher, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus says, you know the commandments? And he states a couple of the commandments. And, and the guy says, uh, teacher, I've kept those since I was a boy, sensing something was still missing. Then the scriptures say Jesus looked at him and loved him. So we have a lesson right here. Jesus looked at him and loved him, and he perceived in his heart, okay, this guy's what's keeping this guy from wholehearted abandonment to me, from loving me wholeheartedly, is his possessions. And he said, go sell everything you have and give it all to the poor and come follow me. And at that, the rich young ruler that was genuinely, sincerely wanting to know how to inherit the kingdom of God, turns away, lowers his head, walks away sadly. Two things. Jesus looks at him and loves him, so Jesus gives us another definition, an example of what love really is. Love is a confrontation of truth. Love is not not saying the truth. Love is not being passive. Love is a confrontation of the truth. If Jesus didn't love him, he wouldn't have said anything. He would have said, come on, we'll work on it. You know, I'm, not just, I'm just not going to tell you right now. Jesus loved him and confronted him with truth. And then the second thing is the guy walked away sad. Now, friends, you know, you know the scriptures say, that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive a hundred times as much in this life and the next. The scriptures declare that. Is that true? Is that true? Do you think Jesus knew that? Do you think he knew that if the rich young ruler went and sold everything he had and gave it all to the poor, that he would receive a hundred times as much in that life and the next? Jesus knew that. Did Jesus run down and tell him? He didn't use the blessings or the favor or the way to live by kingdom principles to convince someone to follow him. Come on, we gotta, we gotta know the gospel. He wants us to willfully choose to follow him because he's worthy. Because he's awesome. It's not about the blessings. It's not about the blessings that we can receive. Jesus wants us to fully, when, Je, when we say yes to Jesus, when Jesus calls us and we say yes to Jesus and his call on our life, he wants us to fully understand what we're saying yes to, and that's what I'm talking about right now. He wants us to fully understand what we're saying yes to. I'm convinced that we have hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people in churches in America that don't have any idea what it means to give Jesus Christ their life. You know why? Because we haven't preached the whole gospel. Listen, Wealth and health and prosperity, those things are part of the gospel. But so is trial, temptation, trouble, and all kinds of persecution. That's the whole gospel. If we're not preaching the whole gospel, we're, we're ill-equipping people for the times. It's the whole gospel or it's nothing. Listen, we're not living in this age. It's not about filling our churches. Don't go. Don't go into ministries five and ten years from now and just preach one aspect of the Bible. It's not about filling up rooms. It's not about filling up churches. It's not about having prosperity in this age. It's about having, it's about having blessing in the eternal age. Preach the whole gospel. 
Learn what it means. Why do we have trial and trouble and suffering? Why do we have those things? Study it. Learn it. But also, God's heart is to prosper us. He wants to fill us up with good things. He wants to give us good things. That's a part of his heart. But that's not what it's all about. That's not the center focus. Now, I heard, I heard a sermon being preached, and I'm not going to tell you who it is, because I want you to form your own opinions, and I want you to listen to God about who you're supposed to listen to and what you're supposed to learn, and you need to form your core beliefs about who you are. So I'm not going to tell you who it was, but he, he had this altar call. I'm going to get some water. He had this altar call, and this drug dealer guy came up, and he was telling him, you know, all I've ever been is a drug dealer. I'm just such a loser. All I do is steal drugs and make all this money. And the preacher guy was like, well, you know, well, when you're selling drugs, you have to market your product, right? And he's like, yeah, I guess. And he's like, so you're really good at marketing. And then he's like, um, and then, and then he's like, and when you're selling drugs, you have to be able to do math really well because you have to make sure your profit margin is right and that you're, you know, you're making money actually. So, so you're really good at math, right? And he goes on to list a couple of things, pointing out the things that he's really good at that are consumed in this drug dealing business. And then, and then the, the preacher goes on to tell the story and he's like saying that he, the guy left encouraged that he could go do another business that was legal and fair because he had those capabilities. I about pulled my hair out because he didn't say one word about Jesus Christ. Because he didn't tell the kid about Jesus. So consumed with prosperity in this age, he didn't tell him about Jesus Christ. His soul. There's no greater subject we could ever talk about than souls. Nothing. You could never give your life to anything more valuable than gaining souls. That's it. And so listen, we need to know, we need to know what the gospel is. We need to know who we listen to. We need to know what we believe. It's not, it's no bash against any particular person. What it is, is we need to preach the gospel because it's all in there for a reason. We got to, Brady, uh, Pastor Brady wrote a, a blog about, are we preparing people for the times? And if we're not teaching on suffering, if we're not teaching on self-denial, this applies to, to love because we have to lay down our lives. We have to be willing. We have to consider the cost. We have to be willing to lay down our lives, to go through trial. You will go through trial, trouble, persecution. Jesus said in this life, you will have trouble. Jesus said they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Romans, it says, we rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. James says, take joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kind, because we know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. It's a part of living our lives for Jesus Christ. It's a part of growing in character. It's a part of Jesus more concerned with our heart than our prosperity. All right, look at Luke 14, if you guys want to turn there. I was going to have all these verses up there, but the, like you know, the things got burned out or whatever. Luke chapter 14, I want to give you some quick context to this. Luke chapter 14, Jesus, Jesus is going around talking and teaching like he, like he does. And, it pro- and he talked about food or a, a banquet or something that prompted a guy to be like, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. 
And then Jesus went on to tell this parable of this great feast in heaven. And it was representative of, of us being in heaven at the feast of God, of those that inherit the kingdom of God. And he said, and he tells this parable, and he's like, this guy's throwing a huge feast, and he sent his slave out to go, to go get people, to go invite them to come into my feast. And he said, they all started making excuses. One of them's like, I just bought a field. One of them's like, I just bought oak, oxen. I got to go try them out. And it says in this parable that, Jesus, that the, the owner of the house became angry because these people were making all these excuses. They were like, no, my land and my possessions are too valuable to me. No, my career and my job are too valuable to me. No, my spouse is too valuable to me. It's representative of these things that are getting in the way from wholehearted abandonment, from loving God, from laying down your life for Jesus. See, they're holding on to their own, own desires. They're holding on to their own flesh. They're holding on to the relationships that were keeping them from the kingdom of God, to the careers, to the possessions. And so this, prompt, this parable, Jesus tells this parable, and then I believe it just flows right into this next passage of Scripture that I want to talk about in Luke, Luke 14, verse 25. It flows right into this where he's like, guys, listen up. These people are making all these excuses. I hope you know if you want to follow me and love me, it's going to cost you. And he starts talking, and he says, large crowds were along with him. <clears throat> and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The word hate there means to love less. And Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, he must love his brothers and sisters, his spouse, his family, he must love them less than me. And then he goes, yes, even his own life. Anyone who comes to him, if he, doesn't, if he doesn't love his own life less than me, in comparison to his devotion to me, he cannot be my disciple. It doesn't say he will not, it says he cannot. That's the laying down of our lives. If anyone doesn't come to him, and love their own will less than him. Love their own fleshly desires less than him. They cannot be my disciples, what Jesus says. Then he goes on to say, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot my, be my disciple. I want to read this commentary to you about carrying the cross. A condemned criminal would carry the cross, the horizontal beam of the cross, out to the site of the upright stake where he would be crucified, usually amid a jeering mob. So amid a mob stabbing, spitting, hitting, no one would choose this fate for oneself, but Jesus calls true disciples to choose it and thus to hate their own lives by comparison with their devotion to him. He's not saying, guys, if you choose me, I'm going to force you to take up your cross and follow me. <laughs> He's saying, when you choose to take up your cross and follow me, then you're loving me. Then you're living for me. Then you're welcomed into the kingdom of God. For which one of you, verse 28, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So here he has this, this idea of this guy going out to build a tower, and he lays the foundation but who would go lay a foundation for a building and not first consider how much it would cost to build the building? So he's saying, consider the cost of being my disciple that it's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you your life. 
And I think a lot of us in this room are probably at a place where we maybe have considered a little bit of the cost, but, but Jesus wants us to know the full cost. He desires that we know the full cost. Otherwise, we're just deceived. Those that are deceived are people that think they can live froofy pup, popcorn and bubblegum lives and not give up anything for Jesus and still get it. We, we got to give up our lives to follow Jesus. He wants us to know the full cost that it's going to cost us. And the truth is, is that it's going to cost us everything. We have to be willing to lay everything down. So it's not just, oh, I got I to gotta lay down like, you know, my girlfriend or boyfriend. I got to lay down, you know, these people. I got to lay down this or that. It's this idea of laying down even your, even your, even our aspirations to be like, I'm going to be this, this million person preacher. It's laying down our desires for his desire. Some of us have desires in us to be godly things, but it's not his desire for us. Listen, fulfill and exceed and, and grow and succeed in the things that God's called you to do. It may change from time to time. I was a mattress salesman, then a youth pastor, and now the director of DLA. What next? Who knows? But I'm going to be living for Jesus. I'm going to be serving him. I'm going to be saying, God, your will be done, not mine. What happens when we're, when we're in the pastorate job or we're in whatever job and we, and we lose it? What happens when we don't have the money that we thought we should have for following Jesus? What happens when we're in debt? But wait, we're following Jesus. I'm tithing faithfully. I'm doing everything right, but I'm going more and more and more in debt. Lay it down. It's not about your debt. It's not about your life. It's not about your comfort. It's not about my desires. It's not about my passions. It's about Jesus and a generation. Are we going to love a generation? Are we going to love ourselves? Just to please ourselves. So he says, consider the cost, and he goes on to say what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, would not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. This has these ideas that just, you know, no king would ever go out to battle without first considering if he could actually win the battle. He's saying, I want you to consider what it will cost and make a choice. Jesus loves it when we make choices. Jesus would rather have us make a choice, yes or no, than make a choice, maybe. You know, hot, lukewarm, and cold. Jesus would rather have us make a choice, yes or no. Here's everything. I present the gospel to you, Jesus says. Choose me or choose yourself. Choose one. Doesn't mean he's going to stop chasing after people, but he wants us to choose. Then he goes on, verse 33. So then none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all his own possessions. In other versions, it says, oh, you cannot be my disciple if you do not sell, give everything you have to the poor. Give everything you have away. Does that mean, I mean, if that's true, then me and Dan and Austin, we can't be ministers of the gospel because we have cars and, you know, a roof over our head. So if that's a practical application, then anyone who's Jesus' disciple is living on the streets. Does that make sense? So this, it's not a practical application the whole application of the whole thing of considering the cost of loving God and loving others is this, is that, you, is that you're willing to lay it all down. You're willing to give all your possessions away as soon as he says it. 
You're willing to do that. Does that make sense? Are you still with me? Okay. Looks like I'm losing some of you. Therefore, salt is good, but even salt has become tasteless. With what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears let it to hear, let him hear. Why is he talking about salt? He's saying if the core element of salt, the purpose of salt is to be salty. If the core element of salt, which is salt, saltiness, if the saltiness is gone out of the salt, is it still salt? Is it worth anything at all? The purpose of the salt is to be salty. And the whole thing comes together when he's like, the purpose of this considering the cost is that the core element of a disciple of Christ is that he's willing to lay everything down for me in a generation. At the very core, it's useless for us to be a disciple if we're not willing to lay everything down. If we're not willing to love Jesus and love a generation. I want to tell, you, I want to tell some practicals here because sometimes I'm not very practical and I want to try to be that way. Love is an action and is the laying down of our lives, whether physically or laying down of our will. Love is the opposite of selfishness. So I want you to examine yourself here. Don't be thinking about other people here. But I'm going to talk about selfishness. Selfishness is the opposite of love. So I know, because I used to be extremely selfish. <coughs> and I'm still working through it. Selfish people are always thinking about themselves. Selfish people, well, most of the time, they won't do something they don't want to do. So I know an, an application for me is like if a group of people were going out to do something and they didn't want to do what I wanted to do, I just wouldn't go. Selfish. Selfish people will hardly ever do whatever they don't want to do. Selfish people don't have compassion or mercy for other people's feelings. Selfish people are takers, and they're not givers. They take, 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 and they don't give at all. Some signs that you could be a selfish person and need to grow in love is you don't have any friends. You're a taker, not a giver. It makes sense. You're always having a problem with people or relationships. If there's always an issue between you and somebody, whether you're offended at them or they're offended at you, you're always having friction, you're always having problems with relationships, you just may be a selfish person. Selfish person, drop out of th things when times get tough. They don't want to push. They don't want to push through trial. They're too selfish with their comfort. They're too selfish with being comfortable. A selfish person is weak because they're always looking out for themselves. Always looking out for themselves, is, it's a weak person. Our society is breed, breeding selfish people. So a few practicals on how selfish people be, begin to be unselfish. Start doing things you don't want to do. Start, you know? Start doing stuff you don't want to do. Start serving. Start going out with people even though they're not going where you want them to go because it just might be that you should build relationship and be a witness or, or be an example to that person. Philippians 2, take on the attitude of Christ. Consider others better than yourself. Take on the attitude of Christ. Don't always look to your own interests. Look to, the, to others' interests before your own interests. Practical example, are you always being like shotgun and you run and go get shotgun in the car? Let other people have shotgun. That's like the most superficial thing you could ever think of, but we can't even get past that. Let other people sit shotgun. That's the first step. Sitting at a table at dinner. Let other people take the middle part of the table. You take the end where you're all alone. You know, it's just like willfully choosing to serve and to love people. Bless your enemies. Don't curse them. Bless your enemies. Pray for those who say all kinds of things, all kinds of evil things against you and insult you. 
Don't always look to receive, but to give. Give, give, give. Serve, serve, serve. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Give your money away to those in need. Be in genuine relationship with people and give of yourself. To conclude here, I want to read this poem from, uh, from Hannah Hancock. She, not poem, but, well, maybe it's a poem. I don't know. She, she wrote this down as just the Lord just speaking to her, just this download of the Lord speaking to her. And so I'm going to read this, have a stand up, and we'll close. He says, I think these are Jesus' words, okay? So you can take this or leave it. You say you are willing to follow me. This is Jesus speaking to Hannah. You say you're willing to follow me, but are you? Are you willing to give up everything? I made you strong, but you need to give me your strengths. You say, tell me what to do, Lord, and I'll do it. But do you mean it? It will mean giving up your life. Doing that is hard. It will mean you have to follow. You will follow me and those I put over you. Can you do that? You're so strong and fight hard. You hold on tightly while saying, Lord, tell me and I'll do. I died for you so you could live and follow and serve, but will you do it? I won't promise you anything in return. I deserve to be served unconditionally. Are you willing to do it? Even if you get nothing from serving me but pain, hurt, and death, will you do it? Will you serve me anyway? Will you only serve me when it is convenient, when it goes along with your plans? I died for you. I bought you with a price, and you are not your own. But I can't force you. You have to choose to surrender on your own. I gave you ideas for a reason, but my plans work out a bit different from yours. Do you want your plans or mine? What do you want, to hold on to your life or give it to me? It will be hard, but I'll be there with you. Won't you let go of it? Won't you let go of your dreams, ideas, thoughts, and life? Won't you give them to me to shape won't you open your fist, stop holding, ha- holding on, and give it to me? Won't you surrender all? Won't you give it to me? That I feel like is exemplified of, of what I feel like Jesus is saying love is. So to truly love him is to say, I, I, I release it. I let it all go to you. I give it all to you. I'm willing to serve you. I'm willing to give up my life for a generation even if all it gets me is hurt, pain, and death. Some of you may be sent into the missions field and you may die a martyr's death. Some of us may die a martyr's death. I think the scriptures declared that that's like the most honored way to die, something to that effect. But some of us are gonna be here willfully having to lay down our rights, our given freedoms. Stand up with me, please. This guy, he's pretty old. He's from Arkansas. He's really unintelligent. I don't even know if he like went to school, but he's like a really good prophet. He said he, he saw a vision in, and he was in heaven and there was this huge line, this huge line of people. And at the end of the line is Jesus facing each person. It's just a single file line. He saw this, you know, really well-worn trail. And he was way towards the back. And he saw all these people coming up to Jesus. And Jesus would say something to them. And most of the people would just have terror and sadness on their face. And walk away and walk down that trail. So most of the people would just have this, Jesus would say something to them. They'd have this terror and this sadness on their face and walk away. 
Some of the people, few of the people, would dive right into the chest of Jesus. Just dive right into the chest of Jesus. Just after Jesus spoke to them, they said something back, smiled big, and dived into the heart of Jesus. So he's just waiting in the line, coming up, coming up, coming up. And he comes up close enough to finally hear what Jesus is saying to these people. And what Jesus is saying is, did you learn to love? Did you learn to love? So I think that this whole thing of laying down our lives for Jesus, it's obviously intertwined with our salvation, loving and faith and laying it all down, but loving a generation, giving it all up for a generation, giving your life for a generation, which is what we've been talking about these past couple weeks. So I'm just going to close this in prayer. I don't feel like we need to do altar call ministry or whatever. And you guys, you guys just search your hearts. You've just heard one of the speakers from Desperation, a ministry of New Life Church in Colorado Springs. For more information on becoming a Desperation intern, attending one of our conferences, or joining the Desperation National Network for local churches, visit us at desperationonline.com.